revealed in terms of the language that we find in other portions of scripture. So what I've done is I've just put together those vocabulary terms that reference the various stages of history that David is recalling in Psalm 23. You don't see it unless you look very closely and think in terms of eras. And he uh, mentions Egypt. He doesn't mention it by name, but he talks about the uh, time the Israelites were in Egypt, the time of the wilderness, uh, Canaan, and uh, Jerusalem, of course, is the final the final uh, term, but uh, a, a Psalm scholar, uh, he's, he's, he's actually Dutch, and he's, he's really a very fine uh, psalm, psalm scholar, Selderheis, Herman Selderheis, um, makes, a, makes a statement, which I think is really very good, and just keys into what I've tried to do here, and he says, uh, David reads his biography, um, or, or, or actually he says Calvin, he's talking about Calvin, Calvin reads his biography in the Psalms. And I think that's really a good way to look at the Psalms. Uh, I know there are some of you today who may be going through a wilderness period, and you think, well, when am I ever going to get through this, and what are the the characteristics of this time I'm going through. Uh, some of us have just come out of Egypt and we're just rejoicing at God's great deliverance. And others of us are nearing Canaan. We're, we're getting close. And we're rejoicing that Canaan is just ahead of us. So uh, I, I think that's really a wonderful statement. So you, you, can, you can read this at your leisure and I'm, I, I don't apologize for giving it to you because it's very important. <laughs> but, you, but I'm not going to talk about it in the sermon. <laughs> I make a lot of changes when I'm preparing a sermon. And sometimes they're at the last minute. And that I, I actually did that this morning, but I won't point those out to you. There are some portions of Scripture that are so familiar that it really is a challenge for preachers and teachers to open up those portions of scripture. John 3.16 is one. Uh, I, I may have preached a sermon on John 3.16 at some point in my ministry. I, 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 I don't remember it, but I refer to the text a lot of times. But just to open up John 3.16 is to open up the great mystery and the great love of God. But uh, doing it justice is the problem. How do you open up John 3.16 and do it just, justice? Another one that I think about is 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about love. It's such a marvelous text. And trying to open up that text and do it justice, really, faith, hope, and love, just that last verse is enough to challenge you. And Psalm 23 is one of those. So uh, someone asked me uh, before the service, what Psalm are you talking about this morning? I said, I'm going to bite the bullet and talk about Psalm 23. 
it's a t it's a, uh, it's a beautiful psalm. We all, m most of us, really love it. But um, it's very, very familiar, and sometimes familiarity is not a friend. We get, become so familiar with things and people that we take really we take advantage of them. Uh, one British poet said, "There's beauty all around our paths." If but our watchful eyes can trace it midst familiar things. I think that's a beautiful word. We need to learn to revision the familiar and get reacquainted. So here I go trying to open up Psalm 23 to you, uh, confessing my reluctance, trying to say something to you that you may not have heard before, before or at least trying to say something that will comfort and encourage you. This morning, I'm only going to deal with two matters, two issues in this psalm. I'm going to deal with the, the first statement, verse 1, and the last statement, verse 6. The first statement, the Lord is my shepherd, and the last statement, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That, that's all I'm going to deal with. And I hope that I can say something about those texts that will give us a kind of encouragement that we need in our walk of, of faith. So first, the Lord is my shepherd. Let me ask you this question. Would you in your wildest dreams ever ask God, to become the lowliest of occupations, to occupy the lowliest of occupations, a position that would not be becoming to God. Any human occupation for that matter, but especially the humblest of them. Would David ever ask God to get off his throne and join him in the fields of Bethlehem as David's shepherd. If David the, sh the shepherd were ever looking for a substitute or an assistant, would he ever think of asking God to take that role? I don't think he would. At least not humanly speaking, but under divine inspiration he does. A shepherd was just the most humble occupation one could have. In, in ancient Israel, a potter sat at his, heel, his, his, his wheel in, in the town, flying his trade, and people came to buy his wares and watch him perform his art. He had a reputation. The smith in ancient times stood at his forge and stoked his fire and pumped his bellows and wrought his metal instruments, and clients came and brought, bought his wares. He had a reputation. The merchant, merchant in ancient times opened his shop and welcomed the customers who came to see his merchandise, and they talked about the weather and the latest happenings in the village. He had a reputation. But the shepherd? The shepherd ranged the meadows alone, conversing only with his sheep, constantly looking for wild animals that were always hungry for a little mutton, 
The days were lonely. His nights were weary. He was away from the hustle and bustle of village life. He would stay out for days, and only occasionally someone from home would arrive with a little food and share the village news and maybe tell a story or two. And then he was alone again. Could we invite God to take up that occupation? Wouldn't that be beneath God? We could never ask God to join us in the fields of our humble existence and be our shepherd. Never would we dare say, Lord, would you be my shepherd and take care of me and lead me in quiet waters and keep me from the wolves and treat my wounds and be forgotten by the world and live a lonely and unsung life, maybe even die for the sheep? Now, there is one man in the Old Testament who had that courage. I, I, I don't have that courage. I could never ask God to do that. But there's one man in the Old Testament who does have that courage to say to God, now, I really think you would profit if you walked in our shoes, if you looked through our eyes, if you became one of us. I wonder if you can guess. It was Job. Job chapter 10. He is suffering from all kinds of uh, setbacks, problems. He's lost his family. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his health. And in chapter 10, Job has the courage, the audacity, perhaps we should say, to say to God, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of man or your years as man's years that you see seek out my iniquity and search for my sin? Now, Job was really saying to God, this is not a prophecy of the incarnation. It's not a prophecy of Jesus coming. But what Job is doing, he is tapping by inspiration into the mystery of God. And this is the only text, I think, that uh, comes close to imagining and re- describing the, the incarnation, although Job is not predicting it, but he is saying, it would be a good idea, God, if you became one of us and looked through our eyes and walked in our shoes and looked at our years as we have to look at them. That's audacity. But while Job is alone in that challenge in the Old Testament, God could volunteer on his own to do that, unasked and unforced. In fact, volunteer is not even the best terms for this. Because it implies that God had options. If you volunteer to work in the, in the kitchen, you're implying that you could do something else instead of working in the kitchen. God didn't volunteer, technically speaking. 
I know the song says, they searched through heaven and found a savior to save a poor lost soul like me. I, I really like that song, but that is not biblical theology. That's not what happened. They didn't search through heaven to find and found a savior. Rather, it was his decree from the foundation of the world that he should become one of us, should humble himself. God, can, can God, can we imagine God doing that? Prior to the incarnation in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, I think it's very difficult for us human beings, even those who are close of us who are close to Scripture. I think it's very difficult for us to really imagine what it would mean if God became one of us, took on our flesh and blood, and was tempted like we are, as the writer to the Hebrews says. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, Paul wrote in Philippians 2. Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in like human likeness, and be found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God did this on his own. He wasn't pressed into it. He wasn't shamed into it, but he did it on his own. And to inform us of how far back that decision goes, John in the Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. So when God created the world, he knew that this was in his eternal agenda. Peter says he was chosen from the foundation of the world. So there we have the New Testament scriptures that God made this decision in eternity, or at least uh, when he founded the he created the world. Now, the point I'm making is that David would have never, nor would we ever, most likely, ask God to humble himself and become our shepherd and give his life for his sheep. That's precisely how Jesus describes his mission. I am the good shepherd, he said. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, but that's nobody pressed Jesus into that position. He, he had, uh, that was his eternal decree that he be our good shepherd and that he lay down his life for the sheep. Now, could you trust a shepherd like that? I think you can. I think we can. We would all trust a shepherd who would step between us and the wolf and allow the wolf to, and allow the wolf to tear him apart rather than harm his sheep. What a savior! That's what the Lord Jesus did for us. 
And it wasn't a decision he had to make on the spur of the moment. Nor did the angels have to find him and persuade him. But from the foundation of the world, he had decreed that he would humble himself, go human, become human, and go to the cross for us. We didn't ask him to do it. That was part of his eternal plan. Should we trust a God like that? You bet your life we should. He did it because he loves us. So David begins Psalm 23 by asserting this marvelous truth that God humbled himself. The Lord is my shepherd. That's just who he is. That's just who he is from the beginning of the world. We don't know what point in David's life he wrote this psalm. Some of us have the picture of David as a young man still under the tutelage of his father, Jesse, sitting out under the stars at one night, pin in hand, sheep safe and secure from all harm, writing this psalm. But if I can speculate a little, I think it makes more sense to think of David writing this psalm at the end of his life when his children's disloyalty was a distant memory, when his kingdom had been firmly established against the unfriendly nations, when his own personal sins had long been forgotten and long been forgiven and almost forgotten, when he was ready to hand over a peaceful kingdom to his successor son Solomon, he looked back and reflected on the Lord's goodness. The older I get, the more I reflect on the past. That doesn't mean that younger people don't reflect on the past, so, so we, we uh, they, they certainly do. But they are by nature and circumstances less likely to spend a lot of time reflecting on the past. They don't have as much past to reflect on as we do. It's quite possible that David is looking back on a life filled with much trouble, but yet marked by God's guidance and care as the divine shepherd. And with this perspective, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, I want us to notice something about this psalm that is absolutely stunning in the book of Psalms, and the Old Testament generally, when the Lord is spoken of as a shepherd, he is Israel's shepherd. Just look at the Psalms text that describe him as shepherd. And it's always, except for Psalm 23, Israel's shepherd. That is, he is the shepherd of the nation, so we would expect to pray a prayer like this: "The Lord is our shepherd." But David prays, "The Lord is my shepherd." That's a rather stunning statement. It means that our shepherd is always looking out for me, for you individually. It certainly takes. It certainly care. He certainly cares for the flock as a whole, but he is also he also cares for us individually. 
We can call on him any time. Just the least little bleat from one of his lambs and his ears and eyes are open. It's hard to realize how the, our shepherd cares for the whole flock and the individual sheep, too. Augustine prays a beautiful prayer. If you've read Augustine's Confessions, if you haven't, you should. Uh, it's in his Confessions. I, I, th I think it... It's not in the. It's not in the first part of the confessions, but later. Um, Augustine prays this prayer: "O omnipotent God, you who care for each one of us as though he was your only care, and who cares for all of us as though we were all just one person." C.S. Lewis says this is because there is no time with God. 10.30 is always 10.30 for God. And we would never ask God, what time is it? His life does not consist of moments following one another. Because of that, he doesn't have to look after your needs and get finished with you before I am the next in line to get his attention. When he gives attention to each one of us, he has the time, all the time in the world. When he gives attention to you, to me, he has all the time in the world for you and all the time in the world for me. This is the way C.S. Lewis expresses it. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he ever had ever created. That is a marvelous thought. When Christ died, Lewis said, he died for you individually just as much as if you had been the only man the only person in the world. Now, if you have a problem with your self-image, or you have a, a, a problem with seeing your self-worth, that ought to help you fix that problem. That when Christ died, he died for you, and he would have died for you if you were the only person in creation. That's really amazing. Can, God can listen to all of us at the same time and give us all the attention we need at the same time because he is not limited by time and by space. The Lord is my shepherd. That means the Lord is mine and he is yours and he is the Apostle Paul's and he is Augustine's and he is John Calvin's and he is the individual believers in India all at the same time. We can call on him, every one of us in this congregation, call on him at the same time and he hears all of us. He comes to rescue you and me.
from the wolves that keep, keep snarling at us. He picks us up and carries us on his, own, his, his shoulder, you and me, each one of us, all the millions who have traveled this road through the ages. Talk about a city with broad shoulders. This is really a God with broad shoulders. He's got room for all of us. And when we're on his shoulder, we're the only one. Now, but that's because God is not limited by time. He's not limited by space. Does this make sense to you? Well, it really is more than most of us can grasp because our minds are so finite. But when we call and our shepherd comes running, when we are caught in the nettles and bushes of our own careless wanderings, and our shepherd reaches out his crooked staff to pick us up, pick us out of, pluck us out of trouble, it starts making sense. And there's our neighbor next door who's in a similar situation and calls on the shepherd. And there's that person sitting next to us who is calling on the shepherd, who needs the shepherd's soothing shoulder to lean on. And there's that person in the hospital who is calling on the shepherd. And he is ours. He is yours. He is mine. And when we call on him, he doesn't say, no, I've got so many people who need my help. You'll just have to wait a while because he is not limited by time. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, and the hired hand is not shepherd, is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. These are Jesus' words. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, I want to leave this point right where I've, I've developed it. And I want to talk about the last statement in the psalm. The psalm has two views of how God guides us, how God guides our lives. The first view is how the Lord leads us as that shepherd who brings us by the still waters and soothes us and cares for us. Metaphorically speaking, this is the shepherd who is going ahead of us and we're following him. We're following him obediently, faithfully. That's the idea expressed by the memorable clause, he leads me beside still waters. We're following him. That's the normal way God guides us. Paul has that beautiful statement in Romans 2 where he says, 
God's primary way of dealing with us is through blessing. It's when we are disobedient, when we ignore him, when we sin against him, that he has to use other means to reach us, to get our attention. And that's when those things happen in life sometimes that uh, are not so are not so pleasant. Now, so the first way that God guides us, according to the psalmist, is he leads us. We're following. We're following obediently and faithfully. There's a second way he leads us, a second view of God's guidance in verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, the King James Version says, shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, the word there, here, last, last Sunday I talked a little bit about Elizabethan English. <laughs> I wish we had time to do more with Elizabethan English if we ever read King James because that's what we've got to know, Elizabethan English. And when, uh, when David writes the psalm, he doesn't use the word follow as we normally take it to mean in English, but he uses the word pursue. The Lord shall follow me, oh, he shall follow me all the days of my life, or goodness and mercy shall follow me. And it means goodness and mercy shall follow me in pursuit all the days of my life. They're chasing after me. One of the songs we sang this morning, I thought, captured that so nicely. Sometimes the sheep get distracted and wander off in different directions, but the Lord sends his hounds of heaven. That's what the Scottish preachers tended to call goodness and mercy, God's hounds of heaven. Uh, Francis uh, uh, Thompson has a beautiful poem, The Hound of Heaven. Sometimes we get distracted and we wander off in different directions, but the Lord sends his hounds of heaven, goodness and mercy, to follow them in pursuit all the way home to the house of God. Now, uh, those hounds of heaven, are not, they're not after you to uh, tear you up. Goodness and mercy, uh, they are gracious hounds of heaven. So he, the psalmist is making the point that there are those times in our lives when God guides us by his goodness and mercy, but they're not, we're not following him. They are chasing us. They are pursuing us on a path that we don't want to go, on a path that we didn't intend to go, but he's driving us back to the path that we should take. Do you remember those times in your life when you wanted to go one way and that still small voice said to you, no, this is the way. John Calvin was traveling to Basel. Um, I, think about, I think it was about 1538. And he did not intend to go to, to, through Geneva. That would 
the one route he could take. But he discovered on his way that a war was going on and he had to change his GPS and that meant he had to go through Geneva on his way to Basel. Now he's going to retire, in quotes, to uh, study and write. He had written the first volume of his Institutes when he was only 26 years old. And that's what he wanted to, how he wanted to spend his life. So he got rerouted by God's GPS in uh, on the way to Geneva to to his destination rather than some of the route. So he had to stop and spend the night in Geneva. And the next morning, William Farrell, one of the Reformation uh, leaders in Geneva, woke him up. Can you imagine being woke up at the early in the morning? And he woke him up and asked Calvin if he would consider coming to Geneva and helping the Reformation effort because they needed him so badly. And Calvin resisted. He said no. He was on his way to another place to spend his time reading and writing and doing his scholarly work. And William Farrell proceeded to say to him, may God curse your scholarly work if you don't come to Geneva and help us. And Calvin tells this story in his preface to the book of Psalms. And he, he said it was, it was as if God had put his hand upon him in that curse that William Farrell proceeded to pronounce against him if he did not do this. And Calvin said, I'll come. And he stayed in Geneva, and he changed the history of the world. You see how sometimes God puts his, he changes our GPS with his goodness and mercy and pursues us to those things he wants us to do, the path he really wants us to take. So I don't know where you find yourself in your own life today, but some of us have had those ex experiences and some of us may be having them today that we're faced with a problem with a situation that we think is right and we want to make our decision in its favor but God may have other plans I'm not saying he does but often he does and he redirects our path by his goodness and mercy. Now you can trust those hounds of heaven if they're goodness and mercy. And this is such a, a beautiful uh, agreement of uh, verse 1 and verse 6. The Lord is my shepherd, sometimes guides me by his goodness and mercy, the hounds of heaven, to lead me in the right path. May God help us.